I was wondering, is fear dangerous? I think that's a good question. I think that's the question we should talk about today. My name is Brendan McNamara. And my name is Andy Swindler. And this is Totally Classic, where every time we get together to record, we ask a question and do our best to question and answer that question. And we hope you find our conversation not only entertaining, but germane to your own thinking. Because we all need each other. And thinking isn't always easy. Especially when, I don't know, you're afraid. Yeah, we are uh, animals in so many ways. And I don't, and I don't mean that uh, in a derogatory sense. Um, <laughs> Stupid animals. Like, ugh, we have to carry around all this fear biology. Meh. Um, no, it's 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 quite useful. Um, you know, like uh, it probably is obvious to most of us how it keeps us alive in really dangerous situations. Um, but arguably, it's it's really the emotion that even just reminds us to look both ways before we cross the street. Yeah, I maybe, the, the first maybe one I'm, one way if it's a woman. Maybe yeah, maybe one way. Or maybe we forget because it's so programmed within us that you're like, I'm sure I probably did that. Like when you walk out of the house and you're like, I'm sure I grabbed my keys. I don't remember doing it, but it's programmed in. Nope, didn't do it. Um, Use my credit card to break back into my house. Uh, the first year I went to Burning Man was the theme was hope and fear. Hmm. And at the time I was like, oh, cool. I have too much stuff to buy. I'm not thinking about the theme. Uh, but later, especially because I had it, I put it on a patch on my uh, utility kilt, which I would wear to, from time to time. It's on my jacket now. Um, uh, I got a patch leaving, like in the in the six hour plus uh, traffic jam as you get out of uh, leave the playa. Uh, I finally started thinking about it then, and I thought about it throughout the week. I think it's a nice thing about having a themed event, um, especially of that sort of depth and demand, is that. It's almost like a, taking on a a, brief, a very brief mantra or like you were talking about, you keep running into fear and people talking about fear and whether it's, what would you call it? Not confirmation bias. What did you, you had a good phrase for it. Selective perception. Selective perception. I always call it I that. Le I learned that at Northwestern. Nice. Shout out wild cats. I, I always call it, uh, well, not always call it, ever since I learned the name for it, that it's um, Bader Minoff. Uh, effect which is like blue uh someone explained it I, I never called it blue car but there's a movie called blue car blue car syndrome where you buy a blue car then you start seeing blue cars everywhere but bader meinhoff is effect is the i don't know who bader or meinhoff was or if it was someone with a multi-hyphenate uh but the effect of uh noting something again and again but having hope and fear so Bernie Madoff? Bernie Madoff? it's like you know what so pyramid scheme but he also you know, was a, was a canny psychologist who's contributed to our our perceptual sense uh, in human history. So shout out. Is he still in jail? Who knows? Um, but having something like hope and fear, it meant throughout the week, like when I hit points of like uh, indeterminate outcome as to my own even will and disposition, then I would kind of return to that theme almost like, well, is that going to clue me in? Is hope and fear going to clue me in? And one of the things I didn't like about it was fear and i think is actually straight up wrong <laughs> over time <laughs> i was like if anyone ever asks about the patch i like having preset maybe it's a little autistic but i have uh, pr i like having preset things to talk to human beings about 
So, oh, when they reference this, that can introduce this anecdote. It's almost like uh, designing myself as a non-playable character. Um, but since I still have the patch on, whenever anyone brings that up, I'm always like, oh, good. We can talk about hope and fear because I don't really like, I find small talk difficult, but hope and fear would be an interesting conversation. But I find hope and fear aren't opposites. Like, I actually feel like fear in the best sense, like activates something in you and then your response to it can still be fearful and hopeful. Like they certainly, and maybe that's what they were saying. It's a duality that plays with each other. There are, they're constantly cohabiting. But I was like, ah, open fear, maybe, maybe. They kind of presented them as opposites in their presentation statement. But um, I, yeah, I like fear. I think I think it's useful. I think it's it's too often derided as a negative emotion. And that's not right. Yeah, I mean, I at this point, I don't really like to classify emotions as positive and negative. Right? Yeah. It's more useful to just hold them as as they are. Because uh, I think if you attach, that might lead to shame. If, right? if it's like we attach shame to any emotion that we're not supposed to feel, then I don't know. Yeah. Just compound things. Um, now, that said, as we've talked about rather extensively on the show, the 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 impact of an emotion that's especially not regulated uh yeah that can certainly have negative consequences for ourselves and other people. yeah all of them you know i i thought i would read uh, a brief bit from my sister-in-law's book um katie swindler uh wrote a book called life and death design uh she is a user experience expert and you know fascinated in some of the same areas uh, about the human condition um, and physiology and emotional response, but looking at it through the lens of how can designers design uh, better interfaces and machines and contraptions and things mm. to work with humans. And, and she she pulls a lot of um, really extreme examples of, you know, like maybe how the cockpit of a fighter jet is designed and things like that. Um, oh, yeah. And yet it's very relatable. And I think obviously good for designers, but um, at the end of the day, I, I really think just about anybody can benefit from this because I think the more all of us understand about this biology and, and how it shows up and, and the more we can just catch that in the moment and regulate it, the better off we'll all be. So I'll just read this one piece um, about the startle reflex. And this is just generally in, in, a, in the whole first section, you know, talking about the stress response, the human stress response. Um, but I think this summarizes it pretty well. Uh, when a sudden threat is perceived, the startle reflex is sometimes triggered, causing the body to move suddenly to protect itself. This subconscious reflex is triggered by a signal sent directly from the sensory thalamus to the amygdala, allowing the person to react faster than conscious thought. While the reflex is helpful in responding to the type of straightforward physical dangers that threatened our ancient ancestors, it is often less beneficial when dealing with the complex dangers of modern life. Mm. And I don't, I can't remember if she uses the, this example, but I once heard of, of one week, anybody who drives can relate to, which is just simply somebody puts on their brakes ahead of you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, really anytime you see brakes ahead of you, the, the instinct is to also brake so we don't, for the fear of smashing into the car ahead of us. And that's mm -hmm. uh, exaggerated, obviously, if, if it's very sudden. And yeah, maybe we're going at high speeds and all of a sudden, oh God, you know. 
I didn't really have time to think, uh, as I think Katie's point, um, and say, well, gee, hmm, how should I deal with this situation? I don't know, maybe, talk, maybe we'll have a little committee meeting with the people in the car and come up, yeah. to, come to a consensus vote on, you know, whether or not we should swerve or stop or, you know. Yeah, we got to get into the research. Like, look, let's look at how, how often braking too fast can lead to rear collisions from people right. behind you versus... And what is and look gauging your speed and the, yeah, there's no time. But this does make me wonder immediately, because I immediately thought, a my stepdad, and me of uh, myself. Let's get Freudian about it. Tell me about your father. I know it'd be mother in the classic trope. I'm playing with that trope. Uh, but my stepdad is a notorious, quote unquote, late breaker, meaning. Like when people kind of pull in front of him slowly, he won't necessarily slow down. If people break. If he doesn't know why they're breaking, he won't necessarily break. And I have a little bit of that instinct myself where if someone's breaking for no reason, my instinct pretty immediately is to go is kind of go around them. Um, and I don't my very first like unthinking instinct is not to recognize their action as valid, which is interesting considering conversations we've had. That's why I was like, oh, I should bring this up because this kind of ties into something I'm, I'm continually examining and we've examined together. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, I think that's a fascinating thing. I, w I wish like everyone I, I knew, this should be the new personality test, is to <laughs> engage people in a series of frightening <laughs> scenarios and sudden scenarios, especially, and see kind of like, oh, and get a sense of like, oh, okay, here's your pattern. Again, without there doesn't need to be any explicit judgment on that of whether you, someone breaks you need to break someone forms a queue you step in the queue someone breaks you immediately drive around them that's fine i mean who we don't know i mean literally because we're talking about in this case i think with much fear it's about the unknown i don't know why that person break like slammed their brakes on they might have slammed their brakes on because they dumped hot coffee on them in which case my breaking is is actually just exacerbating the problem they've created you know, and going, but if they break, if they were suddenly breaking because someone, a child ran out in front of them, me driving around them would potentially kill that child or that squirrel. You know what I mean? Like that's, this is the constant. And this is something why I love rigorously exploring things is I was like, oh, let's clear out all the unknowns that we have because life, life is filled with so many unknowns. But the, the breaking one is a good, um, it's a good usage because it is evaluative, rapidly evaluative. And we all have different instincts. And all those instincts are helpful in a community. Like it would be, I think it would be really bad if we all had the same. Well, I guess if we all had 100% the same instinct, maybe it would be helpful. If someone breaks and you break and everyone breaks. But that doesn't sound like a fun world to live in. That's like, uh, that's kind of step 40 in our program. Basically, if we functioned as robots. And it might be helpful in terms of traffic. If all cars were, uh, you know, auto driving and all had the exact same programming. That, oh, we probably could some. We probably could avoid a great deal more accidents, but the joy of driving is lost. I want to um, address that, but first, just to finish my plug for Katie's book. Yeah, you will find it on Rosenfeld Press, I believe. Um, Rosenfeld Media, rather, lifeanddeathdesign.com. And the book is Life and Death Design. And the quote I pulled was from page 42, which is, as we all know, <laughs> best number. <clears throat> so, yeah, I, 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 I love that idea. Even just, even just the breaking example, of course, limited to people who drive, but that's pretty fascinating. One thing that um, 
I uh, almost always look in my rearview mirror when breaking suddenly. Yeah. That's become my instinct because I have been rear-ended like yeah. at least at least twice. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was I was actually in an accident a couple of years ago. And I finally went to the chiropractor for the first time and he's like, So how many accidents have you been in? I'm like <laughs> no. I'm like adding them up since high school. I'm like, oh, yeah. seven, I think. He's like, Oh, oh wow. Well, that's kind of a lot. And I'm like, is it? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I know. I, maybe, maybe half yeah. of them are my fault. I don't know. But um well, all, I mean, this is the funny thing, all of them, I mean, there, I, every accident is like a majority fault situation, really. I mean, some of you are like, oh, it's just unavoidable. You're like, well, technically, if when you're someone was going to T-bone you, you recognized it, instantly floored it, you know, did some deft maneuver, it's technically possible, but there's plenty of majority fault accidents. But I think it's important, I say this out loud, this is helpful for me too, that everything, that there's some degree of mutuality in most even disastrous scenarios you know even if again it's a clear if it's clear majority and you can definitely identify who needs to apologize or whose fault it is and that sort of thing but there's always something of like well you could have avoided it i know there's some victim blaming in there but you don't blame the victim fundamentally but you still as a victim of anything you still go well next time i can do this thing differently which might alter the outcome yeah i mean even even in a case where the one I was like sitting at a stoplight and somebody just yeah. didn't just rest, smash right out of me. Just like, kept on going. And even in that scenario, I, I agree with you. I would say, well, I I chose to be there at that moment in time. And yeah, and not drive. I, I had so some when, mobility in. Yeah. If you if you if you had just driven, swerving through the stop sign, they wouldn't be able to hit you because you would have been moving. But it was exactly. it's it's simply unreasonable. Yes, it's unreasonable. And, and yeah. I, I didn't like decline his insurance paying for my repair. I, yeah, I, I, cer I certainly would not either. Um, and I don't know, there's a, a piece of that too, of just this idea of, of how we're all linked and mm -hmm. you know, what is a big part of my path of just like a path, the path of empathy. I mean, he was a dad and had just picked up I don't know, fast food for his family. And you know, I make up a lot of stories. I mean, we chatted for a little while, but like, yeah. I don't know. It was kind of late at night. I'm like, wow, like, okay, he, he spaced out, you know? Yeah, like, we, we've all know. done it. Exactly. We've I, all I, assume, done I, I think we've all done it at some point. Yeah. Yes, I think that's a reasonable assumption. And it just so happened that this was a really bad time for him to do that. Yes, yeah. I've definitely done it. I've, I've driven through stop signs and no one was around. And kind of only part the way through the intersection, I was like, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. And you have that 100%. sense, you're like, that was one of those moments. Like this could have been gone terribly wrong. It's good to recognize those. I think it's some good that speaking of, that's like good to have, I think that's a helpful maybe a fear response is when you have a fear response of a disaster averted. I think those are the best. You're like, oh my gosh. And my brain always like locks onto those like a freak of like, I got to learn. I've got to learn from this. This is the thing that's going to save me next time. It may not save me, but if nothing else, it'll, I want, I like want to, it's like you want to force program your brain to recognize that which creates disaster before it creates disaster. Even though I think generally humans kind of, we kind of require the disaster. It's like, it's certainly our best, best path of learning is actual like damage. Oh yeah. <laughs> that's going to get, get those, that, those neuro. <laughs> 
That's what it grew right down. Yeah. yeah. For, for better or worse, but I, I definitely think it helps. I mean, it's like right with parenting. People are always like, well, they're going to have to make those mistakes for themselves. You're like, but why? And it's not completely true. I think there are patterns and there are patterns of I've been taught that have saved me from disasters. I've watched other people, avoid, you know, uh, pl plow right into, you know, or even just being around other people can be like, oh, cool. I don't want to whatever do cocaine, for example. It's highly overrated. That's that's what I've gathered. Again, I had to I had to ask a lot of people. <laughs> I was like, because it sounds fun, but I was like, oh, it's short. Ugh. And then having seen people like, uh, you know, kind of not quite destroy their life, but somewhat destroy or ruin portions of their life, you're like, oh, that's helpful. So I really appreciate, you know, people who go off the reservation uh, in all manner and leave the place of safety. You're like, oh, those are uh, cautionary. Cautionary tales are are actually very helpful, even in one's own life. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if we're supposed to cancel, go off the reservation. I'll look, I'll, I'll look into that later. And, uh, as soon as I said it, I was like, oh, I wonder if that's one of those phrases. And I was like, oh, it sounds sounds good. I mean, I, I thought it was a restaurant term. <laughs> you, can't, you can't just go when you don't have a reservation. Plenty of places don't accept walk-ins anymore. It happened last night. They're like, Kaboom's not a real name. I'm off the reservation. Yeah, exactly. You're off. You're off. This can't be real. This is someone's trying to troll us and put us out of business. Um, <laughs> one thing I've noticed, especially in the past two plus years, uh, a lot of people have talked about it. Um, I've indulged in conversations with it online, is that the past two years have been taking this, a lot of these theories into powerful practice, where I would suggest we have, we're in, still in the middle of, but hopefully kind of in the waning year or year plus of the pandemic, <clears throat> which I think principally was not a viral pandemic, but a pandemic of fear and watching people. And this is one of the wild things. This is, and, and when she was talking about the complex dangers in when in, from to return to Katie's, uh, uh, Mrs., uh, Mrs. Swindler's uh, quote, that the complex dangers of life, many of which do not exist, <laughs> or many of which are irrelevant, uh, because I think we're in a culture presently where people kind of call things harm, call words violence, right? And if we're calling words violence, we have gotten so far afield from what fear responses are for. Are for. And I think it's going to take a couple of generations to reprogram what those words mean, or as a semantic conservative, we should just use those words for what they mean. But that generally, the the, the far greater danger was this sort of culture of panic and fear where people start reacting in a continual basis. I mean, just for health outcomes alone on an individual or social societal basis, but certainly on a way in terms of like you're talking about evaluating, evaluating the situation, looking in their rear view, people just were like, people got real afraid. And then I think the news business, especially where I think it seemed at least to me, maybe I started paying more attention to the news and noticed how many other people pay attention to the news, the news business. But I think this is a pretty popularly noticed phenomenon uh, that the news thrives on fear, uh, especially in the United States of America. We were was something like 80%. We were 80% more negative than the like baseline of negative news throughout the pandemic. Like we were one of the most negative countries in terms of our news content throughout the pandemic. And I think generally, especially look based on our social eth societal ethos of uh, independent thought, uh, liberalism, classical liberalism, 
rationality, that sort of stuff, like um, we reacted especially strangely based on how one might predict such a situation to go. Um, so anyway, it's fascinating. It was fascinating to me how, how, yeah, how far away we are from recognizing actual, actual danger. And so yeah. we, res we respond to things that aren't dangerous as though they are a, a wolf, like a, or a, well, wolves don't actually attack people, a bear. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to badmouth wolves. Yes, I was, it's like the other day when we were saying, yeah, this whole like alpha male, like wolf pack thing, like that's not actually how wolves lead. And like, like, <laughs> we projected all this crap onto these poor animals. And, like, oh. Um, oh, their fault. I actually, so you you bring up, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Kitty uses an example of a car accident. Yeah. Um, and it's not like, you know, breaking in front of you, but it's, I think it's somebody like swerving to the lane or there's an object. And so her, the, this woman's fear response is to swerve to yeah. avoid it. But in that moment, the fear response is not um, permitting her, uh, you know, the space or time or wherewithal to check the other lane she's swerving into. Yeah. So she essentially swerves into another car. Yeah. And, and then it turns out, I believe in that exercise, that like the thing she was swerving against turned out not to be a big deal. Either it, either it was a benign object or or it was a car that looked like it was coming into her lane, but it really wasn't or yeah, something like that. So yeah. it's right on the money of what you're talking about in terms of does when does the fear response the startle reflex actually make the situation worse when is that when you when you, you could yeah. you objectively really look at you know in hindsight you're looking at the the videotape yes. for you kiddos yeah uh, yeah when could it be clearly seen that it was actually the fear response that caused the harm yeah and then in that case i mm -hmm. i believe the answer to our to today's question is yes fear yeah is dangerous yeah i mean fear i think fear is explicitly dangerous like it's it's really to kind of i mean a it is a danger it is a danger response at its most fundamental it's survival response um and it's well on your unregulated it's absolutely dangerous and then even in and of itself like it, it can be preservative but i i don't think it's like fe especially fear responses or strong fear responses aren't fundamentally like phenomenally healthy for us um, they can be neurologically healthy in that like uh, the increased neuroplasticity of uh, like facing feet you know facing fear that sort of thing and then building in sort of like a, a dopamine like training yourself towards the dopamine reward system for facing fear that sort of thing that basically being courageous like I, I say one of the, I don't know if the Greek philosophers, uh, you know, marked it as such, but I think courage is a, a noble virtue to be afraid of something and yet act in a way that is, um, that is brave or beneficial. Um, but yeah, no, fear is phenomenally dangerous. And I think this is the, you're, this is, yeah, if you can check the tape, check the playback, check the replay. Uh, this is why I've been continually fascinated and I always like love bringing up the pandemic a because we're in it but we're also past like a big chunk of it so we have like years now of data of like what a mass hysteria I would say a mass hysteric response or a mass fear response is like to like COVID right 
let's just say, say it's COVID, COVID-19, meaning an infection with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So for example, just this week, uh, I haven't done this too often on the show. This is fun for me. So uh, John, Dr. John uh, Ioannidis, um, who is a highly regarded uh, scientist, especially uh, examining like data presentation. So he's in, in many ways throughout his career, he's been a scientist policing other scientists um, and, and uh, especially focused on quality of data and bias in data and that sort of thing and widely recognized as such. So he just published a new study. It's in preprint, y'all. Um, but it looked at the pre-vaccination IFR, which is the infection fatality rate for um, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. Um, the median IFR for zero to 19 years old uh, was 0.0003%. The global pre-vaccination IFR may have been as low as 0.03 or 0.07 in zero to 59 and zero to 69 year old people respectively. So that means uh, that is a, oh, and just to put that in perspective, that is about 100 times lower than estimates in like March and April by uh, like WHO. There was early paranoia that it was closer to like three, two to two, three, four percent fatality rate. Meaning if you got COVID, you had like a 4%, up to a 4% chance of dying. Now- You mean March, April of 2020, like at the very beginning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Um, now, even at the time, that was not necessarily completely supported by a data that was by data that was like very limited data uh, selection bias uh, going on. Um, uh, I only started looking into it, but I looked back on it at the time. So I, I don't know how people arrived at that statement. But again, in a fear response, you kind of are trying to evaluate as fast as possible. So again, this is helpful for me to like look at it with empathy of like, wait, why did you swerve in the lane when it was just a cardboard box? But once it starts lasting for a long time, and we have an interesting, this is why this, I think the pandemic is so fascinating to observe fear through. We didn't have, there was no emergency to us, danger, like literally, especially once lockdowns happened, which was a inappropriate fear response that caused, generally caused more harm than benefit, um, which we've seen in a multitude of, of fashions, uh, including economic recession, um, but which is going to cause a lot more deaths. But we can look we then, most of us, most people I'm speaking to right now, uh, I actually know probably a good 20% of my like friend groups who actually never stopped working, but I would still say the majority of people I knew anyway, uh, stopped working and were locked down, sent home. Schools were closed, work, workplaces were closed, in which case you had tons of time to be like, hey, what's this object in the road? What's going on? But I think in this is fascinating to me. This is almost like taking the car metaphor and being like, what if you were in the car and someone in the passenger seat who you implicitly viewed as some sort of authority figure screamed at you, get out of the lane, <laughs> especially let's say on a daily basis, get out of the lane. That's a cardboard box. If you hit that cardboard box, people are dying. People are dying. You know what I mean? So if someone is constantly screaming at you, in some ways, I don't even know if it's a fear response anymore, or is it just like, I, like I don't, I literally don't know neurologically, like because it's certainly not the startle response any anymore anymore. Like there's that, that's that, but it is like in some ways, I, I feel like this is super smart in terms of driving clicks and views and advertising. I know advertising is generally built on fear, like it's it's almost taking the startle response and grabbing hold of it and being like, hey, let's ride this out. Let's let's roll with this as long as we can. 
you know, as a way. And it's great, again, for capitalist purposes. It's super smart, super savvy. And I know, especially Katie works on user interface, which I guess in many ways is grabbing, and I know social media algorithms are built in the same way of like, ooh, grabbing onto whatever your strongest response is. And then, especially your strongest tendencies of response, which is like where your, dope, you know, your dopamine addiction comes in um, and kind of dragging that on as long as possible until basically the pandemic didn't end. People just got exhausted and people just literally gave up. And the people like, I guess the pandemic's over. They're like, nope. There's still a big old cardboard thing in the road, <laughs> but we're just like, I can't do it anymore. Which like, it's fascinating to me, the idea of like how long it took to exhaust, but on a social level, like a social society wide level, how long it took to exhaust people's sort of extended fear response. Yeah. Mm. yeah and, and, and I think we've addressed this uh, in some ways you know that this pandemic of fear, as you named, I mean that's that's still alive and well. Yeah, and that's, yeah. That will continue to be exacerbated, manipulated. Um, yeah, it's we. I don't. I think we've known the science of that for a while. We've just gotten better at building technology for it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you know, and I, I um, actually, Kenny goes into quite some depth about the, the physiology, but at a high level, you know, we mentioned the amygdala. Um, mm. and then just, just the adrenaline. I mean, often the adrenaline is released, cortisol, yeah. these chemicals that have their purpose. They're, yes. they're, they can just, just shove us, you know, right into action. And yet if prolonged, like they're, they're meant to be very short term yeah. solutions and then, you know, run away from the danger. And then animals are so savvy about this, um, for the yes. most part, the ear will like go behind a bush and like shake. And, yes, you know, and I'm, I'm learning some things about trauma release, and it's just humming, shaking. Just it doesn't have to be some I don't know advanced technique. Just you know, I, I sometimes just do that intuitively, um, but I have to kind of remind myself to do it. It's not it's not an instinctual practice. It's no. like, oh yeah, like this thing because I think sometimes, you know, like I was just in Palestine and, and we toured a refugee camp in Bethlehem, and I wouldn't say it was a, an acutely traumatic experience in fact it was amazing because we visited the sister of one of the people we knew who lived there and she served us Makluba, and it was an absolutely amazing hospitality and yet at the same time like i'm absorbing this situation yeah it's it's not an acute thing but it, you know there's just a lot there um and i was thinking afterwards like oh gee that would have been a good opportunity to to shake a little bit or something and i yeah. think whether even that may be an extreme example for a lot of us. Um, but I think that's part of the challenge is it's not always like an, a near a near auto accident or something like yeah. that. Yeah. No, just... it's you know, it's trauma of any absorption, I guess, of any of any of that, of any of danger. I mean, it's a danger. You're like, this is dangerous. This is not a this is well, and, and not even danger. Anything like that fundamental, I would say fundamentally reveals the brokenness of the world. Yeah, there you go. So that's what I saw. I, and that's a that's a that's a lot the brokenness of the world <laughs> yeah but that's even, a lot i think something we're both super sensitive to is just how this shows up in social media and right like i mean you're you're it's funny like if we can abstract ourselves and, and think at the end of the day we're literally just staring at a at a little computer uh yes. with with some words on it and and all of a sudden all those chemicals are alive for me and i'm freaking yeah. out and, 
you know, and and you know, probably adding adding to the fire, <laughs> throwing a few yeah yeah logs uh, onto the fire, and you know, one thing I've heard, and I I don't I want to look more into this idea actually, but adrenal fatigue. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so when you're talking about fatigue from the pandemic, I mean, how much of it is is that like this all near constant um, supply of adrenaline and other yeah it's exhausting stress chemicals yeah. that are just like yeah. oh my god and yeah i heard this once a few years ago i was actually giving a workshop and again i, I think we know by now on the show i hear things and then and then that sort of sticks with me and then and then maybe <laughs> brendan will research it but I, um, <laughs> let me fact check you andy uh but this this said this i don't know this made sense to me i guess from what i know of the amygdala and how much work it does to but like be the you know traffic cop in our brain of, of whether or not things deserve a fear response that in highly uh in situations maybe where some uh, like somebody is under um underprivileged marginalized living in economic scarcity food scarcity a lot of that just constantly that they'll they have done studies apparently where their their amygdalas are enlarged they're engorged mm. and i'm curious Infl- yeah inflammation yeah. Well, and and I don't know enough about the amygdala to know whether like inflammation would restrict the fluidity of its operating procedures, but my assumption would be that it would. Well, yeah, and it's interesting too to note the from my own experience, and then I think really watching, I was like, this behavior manifests as um there is an there's an addiction to fear, like we're all. Uh, adrenaline junkies, um, fear fear seekers, uh, or fear avoiders, adrenaline avoiders to a degree of like like pathologically uh, harmful socially um, for ourselves as individuals, but even like the society at large. Noticing in myself, especially that I am in a sort of uh, I have been, I would say, for a number of years because of my autoimmune condition in a sort of chronic fatigue state. But I have, and I struggle with, uh, well, dopamine addiction, because we all do, but it's literally, you know, it's, it's the addiction that drives us in a lot of ways, but brain-wise, but um, even an adrenaline addiction, because adrenaline can, I can't drink caffeine, I uh, shouldn't have too much sugar. Um, my body has difficult, difficulty processing calories, but even in my depleted state, if I can generate a little bit of that, if I can find ways to generate a little of that stimulation of fear response and then purpose-based facing of fear, which I think then enlivens my sense of like, whatever the teleology, uh, purpose, sort of purpose self, like purpose-driven action in a state of fear. So then I'm being courageous, which is in life, like that's a dopamine freaking factory for me personally. And then also have the adrenaline of faith in being in an anxious or fearful state drawing near things that make me afraid um, or things that are even just are, I can evaluate as dangerous, then that could be addictive. And then therefore, when people try to take that away from me, I respond like a flipping fiend. And I've observed that in myself, certainly. And I've absolutely observed that in many, many, many people. Um, and something we've talked about too, that like when you then, even if you try to talk people out of that, which they've been afraid of, like if people are listening and they heard me say what the IFR for COVID is, I guarantee somebody responded with a no, but no, that's, that's not like 
someone responded in an, it, 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 it would trigger a response of denial of just, just observe statistics could be, could be right. Could be wrong. Be like, hmm. we should just regard that with curiosity, right? It's not dangerous to literally read a study that evaluated pre-vaccination IFR from a two-year zoom out vantage point by one of the, you know, one of the most uh, well-respected, you know, scientists policing quality evidence. I was like, oh, okay. You, sh you should just be like, oh, maybe that is true. Oh, I wonder why other things went wrong. But I guarantee, because I've seen this over and over again, when I share things with people, they respond as though you're about to take away their favorite toy. So I think we love and I, I think I think we're in a. I'd love to try to figure this out. Like why we as a society are especially primed to love that that mm -hmm. sense of like of aliveness. And my my first thesis would be virtuality. We have such a virtual existence that inures us to actual like drama of life, you know. And I think we're actually designed to have a certain amount of drama of life. Not as much as we do though, but we have it in these weird little low level virtual blips. And so, but then you crave, you crave craving something and the, and the intensity, maybe I do, especially. So I recognize it in myself that I crave intensity of feeling like I adore it. It's so delightful and fun. And it feels like that's what, what life is for. You know, even when you were talking about shaking from trauma, I was like, well, that's what dancing is for. That's why dancing, you have to dance even in times of trauma or mourning. And that's why you yeah. play music. You should play music and dance at funerals. We have to, we, some, we physiologically know we need to, shake this stuff out you know yeah oh yeah again i'm looking to dance hard i was like cool how do i do something hard out of that <laughs> i yeah and, and as you know this is really alive for me i'm really embroiled in that exact situation where i raised something and i use uh slightly incendiary language I think slightly, um, and yet I think accurate. <laughs> um, uh, with with a group I'm involved with regarding the pandemic and the vaccine mandates and the impact that's had on not only inventing a, a class of people in the last two years, but then creating ex exclusions around it. Uh, yeah, you, you had which is, yeah, which is a clear. I mean, it's a clear indication. I think of a trauma response, right? I think anytime we act contrary to the way that we have sort of established for ourselves to act by ethos or habit, I think that's a good, it's again, anytime you're triggered, right? What's going on here? That's not, that's not, you, I don't know. You shouldn't say it's not normal because human beings do that, but uh, that's not typical for you. Why would you, why would you be into that? Or why would you respond that way? That's not like anytime we have an atypical response, it can be such a massive teacher, either in terms of, oh, you had an atypical response that was contrary to your very ethos or harmful to others or whatever. And then sometimes you can have atypical response. That's, that's the opposite. It's like, oh, that was an atypical response. Good job, right? Constantly. I mean, the, re the reward punishment of like acknowledging and evaluating and assessing and putting things in different bins of like, oh, hmm, how, how on target or off target that was. Um, I think the reaction itself, like the, the styles of reaction themselves are, are very revelatory. Absolutely. You know, and, and in this particular situation, to be a little more specific, um, there was an event here in Chicago that otherwise I, I looked like a great event, but the place that was hosting it required vaccine, um, proof of vaccination, yeah. which kind of feels old fashioned at this point under in, under any circumstances, you know, like <laughs> yeah, even, yeah. even pro-vax people for the most part, like 
I don't know, like I'm not, I don't see masks that much. You know, it's, it feels strange now, like yeah. to go to a place that where it's like, oh, we, we needed to wear a mask or we have to see your vaccine card. It's like, huh, that just feels, you know, like, I think I, I think I have more empathy for people who were thinking that six months ago. And maybe that's selfish because I, you know, I've been deep in this journey, particularly with you. Um, yeah. And, and I've shifted and, and, I think I, I, some of my discovery this week is like, oh, like, why am I impatient now? Why am I not having as much empathy? And mm-hmm. so I think on all aspects of this stuff, I mean, I, I think it goes back to a dopamine addiction to being right. Yeah. Uh, I think those are connected and it feels, it feels good to be right. And it feels, I don't know, arguably usually maybe feels bad to be wrong. But it certainly feels bad to be shamed for being wrong. And I think that's yeah. a lot of what this this you know is happening here. So in response to that event, I said, hey, the event looks great other than the vaccine segregation. Yeah. And that was not taken well. Um, and yeah. it's I think the response was that I was using that as an inflammatory phrase. Interesting. I, yeah. I was attempting to just use it as an accurate phrase. Although yeah. as a as a kind of shortcut, I mean, it, it is a punchy uh, statement, I suppose, especially in the yeah, yeah. group, it's, you know, an activist group. Um, but the response was was fascinating, as you know, because it, it like the, even the email subject that came to sort of urgently address the first there were this like, which I actually never gotten to the bottom of this request um, or this mm. this need that was stated to like urgently address this, which. Yeah. Until I learn more, I can only interpret it as like, um, wow, we've got to set Andy straight. Like, this, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But otherwise, I don't, otherwise, I don't know. Maybe the best could be like, the best interpretation would be like, oh, let's get super curious and like dig into this and like see all sides and have a, have a dialogue and then sure. maybe come to some kind of group consensus about how we feel about this stuff. Yeah. But that's not at all the tone of it because. This, this email chain that was then started with the subject um, responding to anti-vax rhetoric. Yeah, yeah, which is wild. And even this, just that yeah. container is like... Yeah, you're like, hold on a second. And you've yeah. got the initial thing, which, you know, I, I do give credit for a framework that, that you know, cr- at least created the, the foundation for, uh, uh, you know, here, here's what here's what I'm basing this on. Here's an article from the CDC that I'm basing this on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, if you think something different, please provide your your evidence. I'm like, okay, you know, that's a framework. Yeah, but framework. Then, at least the framework for dialogue. Yeah. But then it became, and I think mostly we've been talking about kind of individual psychology and physiology, and and then we kind of expanded way out to the pandemic. But there's this place in the in the middle of of the group of the group or tribe or cult dynamic. Um, yeah. And it show, I've seen it show up a couple different ways. You know, one is like when one person with a, a, a lot of voice or power um, can kind of override or like it, like really create a new truth. Like when they just even maybe say like, oh, this is this is what happened. Yeah. And that suddenly becomes the new truth or a new thing. And then the other part is like the pylon when either yeah. people agree with that person or maybe feel like they need to defend that person. Yeah. Reason, which again, in this case is totally bizarre because I didn't address it to anybody specifically. It's like, yes. Yeah. But yeah. The fear response 
in all likelihood, coming back to what you were just saying, is yeah. people are like, oh my God, this is in such dire contrast to what I believe is true scientifically about yeah. the vaccine. Yeah. And now you've introduced this massive cognitive dissonance with the idea that maybe the way we're handling the vaccine is not doing what what they think it is, which is making people safer. Yeah. But actually potentially harming people. Let's say at best there's a neutrality to it. Yeah. But in all in all those circumstances, then how do we justify, you know, cre creating the ethics of exclusion, right? Um yeah. Well it become it becomes almost a comprehensive examination to go back to the car of, hey, we keep swerving into other cars. <laughs> like let's 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 stop crashing. What do you mean crashing? Well we're avoiding, we're clearly avoiding the 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 box. We don't know what's in the box, right? So even if you don't know, you just be like, it could be a bunch of puppies. I'm not killing a bunch of puppies, you maniac. You're like, yeah, but we keep crashing into cars. So let's, you know what I mean? It would be now obviously in a fully like tense, instamatic, instant sense, then uh, then a strong reaction would make sense, right? If you're yelling at someone for crashing into cars when they keep trying to avoid bombs or whatever, you know what I mean? If it's like you're in War of the Worlds or something, and you're driving, you have, things are being bombed and you're like, you don't yell at the person who's doing whatever they can. But in this place of calm, that to me is always fascinating when people jerk into a into a, into a, a fear danger response. I found especially interesting, like with your case, unrelated to actual individual trauma meaning this is like so many degrees removed from anything anyone's even dealt like what are they being triggered about it really is just like a thought and this is i think the danger this whole danger of like the, the dangers of the modern world where it's just like people view i think generally or even have a, maybe even have a, a very such a similar physiological responses it's very difficult to not view it as such to cognitive dissonance for example uh as a like a start it produces that startle effect like if you're startled by something that you haven't seen before and i'm an intensely curious person so i don't really know percent how that happens like why that would happen like something start i've certainly been startled but the startle effect lasts i mean it's so short dude the startle response is less than four seconds um I've only had one in my entire life. Like I've been surprised and shocked by things, obviously. I've had people pull out in front of me suddenly, right? And fast pace. I've had people wait behind a door in a dark room and, and frighten me with their voices. And I've done it to many other people and I find it hilarious. Um, my wife does not like it at all. Uh, she's cried the last two times I do it. So I haven't been doing it as much. Um, <laughs> I, I laugh out of start being startled. I usually get that uh, and I laugh, like I have a laugh response, a shaking laugh response, because uh, I do like, like I like that feeling. Um, but the only time I've ever had a genuine fear response, I was uh, in the wilderness reading a Bible. Um, I've been, I fasted the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights, and I was reading a Bible, leaning on a rock. And I heard that distinctive rattle of a rattlesnake. And then a rattlesnake, I would say at least like a six, seven rattlesnakes get pretty darn big. It's like a six or seven foot rattlesnake, very substantial, like very thick, not quite as thick as my wrist. That would be exaggerating, but thick. Uh, literally was coming up the sort of rock face uh, to my right towards me, which normally snakes don't always do. So I, I assume I must have been standing somewhere where perhaps it typically takes shade or once had a nest or whatever. I don't know. Um, but it was coming towards me, which is flipping freaky. And so oh I. 
turned and it was maybe like, I don't know, it's probably less than 10 feet away. It's always hard to tell because in a, in a sharp fear response, I do believe our senses are heightened. So my vision might've like clarified and made it feel closer, but it was close enough to me that I was like, oh my gosh, there's a rattlesnake literally coming for me. Now, of course my mind didn't go, well, great. A rattlesnake can only strike as long as its body if it's coiled. If, if a rattlesnake's out flat, that was actually the perfect time. I could have just run over and stomped on its flipping head. Completely dealt with the problem because it was it was out straight. Like it was, it was winding mm. up. I didn't think any of that through. I looked over, saw the rattlesnake, heard the rattle, looked at it, saw it coming towards me. I ran a good like 15 to 20 feet before I had a thought. Like I was already, I literally stopped 15, 20 feet away and then was like, looked back. And I was like, I don't even, I, my brain glitched. It felt like my, it felt like I blacked out. Like I, I barely remember moving. And I was like, that, that was the only like genuinely strong fear, like startle response I've ever had in my life. But, it, but since I have had a genuine startle response to a genuine danger, um, especially because I was out in the wilderness alone. So yes, if I got bit by a rattlesnake, I literally could die. Um, so but that's how quick it is in, in actual, actual danger. Meaning like when, has, when one is triggered by a, a cognitive dissonance to let's say a word use, a semantic phraseology, 15 seconds max of, of strong reaction. And maybe you start typing then, but after that, how is that response even happening? Unless it's again, it's been pathologized and justified or whatever, it becomes like a social, this is like the mass hysteria, um, mass formation psychosis, thesis offered um, by a number of whatever uh, social scientists and psychologists or whatever about the phenomena of the past couple of years. But it's that stuff is that's what's especially fascinating to relate actual danger and response to the circumstance that you're um, discussing. And and the rattlesnake said, oh man, nobody wants to hang out with me. I know, what's up? I was literally like, I was doing my calm rattle. That was the, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> Just, just, you know, chill. we're chill here. We're totally chill. I'm not coiled up. <laughs> well, I, you just reminded me something I try to hold on to is that on average, my understanding is that, you know, our emotions will process through in about 60 or 90 seconds if we give them time and space. Yeah, which yeah. Most attention. of us don't yeah. or don't or don't have the opportunity. And this is, you know, a lot of my works in, in sort of workplace dynamics. And yeah. I think that's especially true in in the workplace for for all sorts of reasons. Um, and even if there there was a stated culture of sort of connection and care, do we trust it, or yeah. or, or we're yeah. kind of trained not to admit weakness in a lot of ways? And I'm like, yeah. oh no, I'm going to tough it up with all this. I got it. I got it. It's like no, just let it. You know, God, I dream of a world where we could just be like, whoa, hey everybody, I'm like. I'm really having a, a thing here. Could could we all just you know kind of hum for maybe two minutes and maybe like, yeah. Whoa, <laughs> like that'd be amazing. Yeah. Um, one of the other pieces. It's funny. I I wasn't consciously thinking of it when I chose my shirt today for Reptile Fest, but a lot of people refer to this part yes. of the brain chemistry as the reptilian brain, and it's arguably the more the more primitive um, in terms of evolution. But it's funny, as you as you well know, I live with a, a, an iguana named Phaedrus for the last 23 years. So I feel like I've had a really up close and personal um, <laughs> exploration and understanding. It's like deeply embodied um, just what how the reptilian brain works in that, mm. at least at least in that one animal. And 
it's interesting because I mean, for the most part, she's very sedentary. You know, like mm-hmm. mostly just just sitting in her basking spot, chilling. Um, and and yet I I do see it, um, but I think it's I don't know. I always get a funny little defensiveness when people. I'm like, can't we call it something else? Like, why are we going to be down on reptiles? You know? Yeah, yeah. Because it's almost to me, this does feel like the negative side of the fear response. And that's when people are talking about the reptilian brain. They're like, sure, oh, sure. It's, it's this less evolved, you know, like panic attack sort of brain. You know, I'm like, yeah. Um, I get, well, but I, I get it in that, but, but it, should, it isn't necessarily, even in the description, it's not actually negative. I know you feel defensive of Phaedrus, um, who's a gentle spirit, but um, the, it, it's, it's just, I have the scars to prove it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's the gentle. Uh no, it's a it's a it's just fundamental, like it's it's a phenomenally fundamental response. Where it is, and I think, but okay, this heads towards but the reptile in your story seemed to be yeah. pretty fucking calm. That's all I gotta say. It could yeah, really, yeah. It could have been, could have been. Um, but like it it speaks, I think, to our desire. The negative tone that I think you feel off of it, which I don't think is inaccurate, is I think we have this longing for us to continually like quote unquote evolve. So if that's older, that means worse. But if we held on to it in any way, then that actually means it was properly adaptive. And in some ways it could be the truest part of ourselves. Um, the, the weird thing is I think we, I think we're very divided as a society where either our, I think we're wrestling hard with this, like either our emotions are the truest thing in the world, or they're the thing that needs to eventually kind of be bred out of us. <laughs> that we either need to be like kind of let them have all the control uh to, to watch that are like emotion driven thoughts or non-rational thoughts should drive reality again this is what i've struggled with that i think our society sort of chose in the past two plus years that we kind of chose as a society to generally regard our emotions as we're emotional led like we've not been in evidence led we've not been science led um we've been as a, as a populace uh, emotion led. And we just decide that's true. My, how I feel about this is the truest thing in the world. And I think there is another aspect of ourselves. Maybe this is even our right and left hemisphere sort of like arguing it out that suggests this old instinct of just like, ah, just respond is we got to get rid of that. We got to, we got to stop at that. Cause that's, all we're going to do is then just ah, 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 back and forth and back and forth forever, you know? Yeah. We've got, to, we've got to breed it out with technology, even potentially. I think the, to me, the place in between is regulation. Like, yeah. Ah, I'm having an emotional response. What, you know, do whatever I can. I don't know, breathe through that, hum through that, shake through that. Yeah. Get, be with others who can co regulate. Um, and then, and then do something, right? That, yeah that, yeah that's the path through it um I, i'm i think i'm more on the side of i mean i relate uh feelings in a lot of ways to spirituality um in the practice no, no that, I've, that i've had and i know we are a little i think we see that differently and that may be a good discussion for the future yeah yeah but one um i guess to, to slightly expand on that meaning meaning that there's a feeling of being connected to some greater energy or power or, mm-hmm. or God. Like, and so I think that's, but that's, that can be quite tricky because I think, you know, as we look at how all kinds of, um, I don't know, religions or spirituality or 
ethos of all kinds have been weaponized over time. You know, it, I'm always curious. I think that's why I've gotten super curious about like pleasure chemicals and like, okay, mm -hmm. which ones of those, I don't know, could, could we, could we remotely decide or define which of those are, are some kind of connection to higher consciousness or higher spirit, however you want to say that, mm -hmm. and which ones are really lead typically lead more to these like harmful reactions and then scale yeah. up some of the things we're talking about yeah One yeah I weave in briefly is just I, I also like when i was studying mindfulness that i think this science has been pretty clear for a while like that we we make decisions from the emotional part of our brain and and then we and then we kind of back them up and mm. rationalize them and the the example given at that time was that there was a study where there were people who had brain damage and it affected the emotional part of their brain and they were given a choice between a black and blue pen and it took them more than an hour to decide mm. so even the most simple decision is is at least activating that yeah part of our brain. although that is for someone without emotional regulation that is one of the hardest things to ask them to do because then it is because who cares like that's who cares that is almost explicitly a like an emotional attachment like i like i like i have a warm feeling towards black pens than more than i do blue pens a blue pen i'm like mm, i have like a a stronger disgust response which probably filters more through there's no value i can't be like well because in the past this one teacher who didn't like me and so i've decided that all pe i've evaluated that all people who are mean write with blue ink so i don't want to be a mean person you know what i mean for me it is i, I got an f when i used blue ink once so i don't want to yeah exactly it's not pattern on obviously so that is i just want to say for that experiment that's that's a very difficult decision to make without without emotion yeah which well, I, had, you, I think you brought up that example before and I'd never, I never I'm glad you brought it up multiple times because I hadn't noticed that initially I was like oh that does make sense like it would be hard but I was like no that's a very that's a particularly hard question because there's no as opposed to something like hey would you like to eat um an apple or a donut right now because then right. you can because then you can go into like oh okay well I've already had some healthy food blah, blah, you know what I mean so I would go into my rational brain for that because there's no rational way to decide that black or blue ink is better yeah basically yeah yeah other than i mean that's i mean i don't know i mean i love i love having rational arguments but and i could go ahead and we could do that could be a debate club fun thing to do but that's i don't know anyway that's just fascinating that's a like a how those types of decisions it's, it's fascinating to think about how much that is emotional in a all, quote unquote all things being equal scenario yeah your google go purely off emotion and I think people try to create, actually, I think that happened with you. People try to create those scenarios, pretend those scenarios exist that like all things being equal. People have done that with me, scientific conversations or whatever. You like show someone evidence because they don't, they're making a claim and you're like, okay, well, let me defend my claim. And they're like, well, you know what? That's one study. Other studies say different things. You're like, okay, so all things are equal. Like you're, that's your claim right now is it's blue ink and black ink. And I was like, show me one study. Let's just go back and forth until we run out, right? We could play this like a game of cards. Let's keep putting our cards on the table until we run out. And then it's like, okay, well, I have more studies than you. Now let's look at the quality of studies. This is a very easy thing to do rationally, but people go into the, I think this is, and to me, it's a good sign of people heading into an emotional state when we don't need to be led by emotions. But however, for your ethos personally, in some ways you're like, if emotions are connected to 
source divinity like our true our spiritual selves then you kind of want to keep those around you know right so that's fascinating well and which i think well yeah i think generally our perspectives on spiritual existence are almost explicit almost explicitly contrary or if there's like a one and two of this arrangement it's a it's flipped upside down or whatever that feelings um feelings are sec are are secondary or feelings are i think in some ways the pathway most intensely connected to ourselves mm. like just like to me emotions and intuition to me are the least reliable methods of evaluating reality but they're also the strong i think they're the strongest in our in usness you know what i mean so for me emotion would be the probably the the what is it the the fastest slide or the or the shortest ladder to um intensified pure connection to self which would but mm -hmm. i think in your program that self and divinity may be connected concepts whereas in my purview self and divinity are explicitly separate until unified concepts and mm -hmm. I, I know i said it in a vague way but no i i i do want to talk more about this in the future you know because i i i there might be an alignment there that that emotions are the accelerant or can be the strongest pathway um so that's if i heard that right i mean that's a, that's a curiosity yeah. um, to you so like knowing yourself yes yeah which then to me does does relate to divinity yeah um Gosh, she said something I wanted to respond to, and it's it's drifted away. So maybe I'll I'll say I'll hopefully that'll come back. Um, hmm. One uh, one story that's really alive for me. I've been yeah, getting into rock climbing uh, in the last year and a half. I haven't in a while actually, but I do enjoy it. And you know, they're they're in in rock climbing. There's the idea of belaying, which is somebody mm -hmm. holding the rope, essentially. Yeah. And I notice if somebody's belaying or holding the rope, um, I'm I, I like that for a lot of reasons. It just feels better to have somebody there. Like you can, I can take a break uh, halfway up if I need to. Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting because I'm really there's quite a bit of trust there, right? <laughs> In terms mm -hmm. of the, that person. Yeah. If I fall, it's really up to that person. Um, and now there is some technology, right? That it'll lock. If, yes. If, yeah. Yeah. It rips out. So I'm really relying. I guess I'm mostly relying on their weight and the the physics of of the uh, pulley. Is that it? Yeah. To, um, to to make sure that even if I'm heavier than them, that that I'll still be held up. However, there's also this thing called the auto belay, which mm -hmm. is this machine, and you just hook yourself in, and it's like a I don't know maybe a flywheel. Some kind of spring and as you go up it it just it's like a seat belt it just you know sort of stays oh, yeah. with and mm -hmm. paces, paces with me and i don't mind that so much going up and i'm not afraid of heights um although my my girlfriend now is so that's actually been really interesting to look at um her acrophobia we looked it up mm -hmm. um, but the thing for me is when i get to the top of that climb and this is you know an indoor climbing gym I am terrified mm. to jump off and and allow that yeah. to to let me down gently. That's a huge trust fall, man. That's a big one. 
it's it's big and rationally you know i i i I keep thinking, oh, I, I should look into the company that makes those. I should look at their their sort of safety record. And yeah. you know, I'm sure they've posted all kinds of yummy information about how safe that is. And how and I see when I get up there, I'm like, you know, inspection date and all this stuff. Um, and like, yeah, none of that matters. And so on the one mm-hmm. hand, it's, I love like having access to this, um, so like self-fear coaching. Yeah. I mean, really, I, I, if I, I, I do want to face fear more. I don't, I don't think I always do with courage. Um, and I think this would be really a good kind of clean way to, to, to be in it. Cause I don't, I don't mm-hmm. really think it's dangerous at all. I see my 11 year old niece just <laughs> getting to the top and jumping yeah. up. Like it's absolutely she's she'll, she's going to heal way faster than you, man. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> So yeah, I almost feel like I want to do fear reps. I'm just, I'm going to go to the gym yeah. and do fear reps. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, that's what a part of what I want this show to be for me and for you. And I'm sure it's slightly more uncomfortable for you. I'm assuming it is um, because this is totally my happy place of like doing those fear things. Um, I did the ice plant, ice baths with my um, beloved a bunch of time. She loves it. I do not like it, but it is like overriding fear and just being like, your body's screaming at you, get out, no, no, don't, no, You're, what are you doing? You're literally trying to kill us. You're trying to murder us. And you just go, no, no, it's not true. I can, I can be here. I'm, and, and you shake and you breathe and you just go, all right, yeah, I'm just going to be here. I'm going to recognize it, see it for what it is. Again, it's all this acknowledgement facing, you don't even have to accept it. You know what I mean? I was like, in some ways I did not, like I sort of deny my fear response. And I was like, well, you don't get to you don't get to rule. You don't have to leave. Like, it's fine that you're here. Yes, if I fell into a plunging river in the wild by myself, I would want some part of me to be like, you should get out. But it's fascinating to like, uh, it's, it is a fascinating thing that I think, and I, but I love it on a daily basis. I mean, this is why like I draw near people with like bitterly oppositional perspectives on the world than myself. Um, and again, I'm acculturated to that again, as being like growing up in at least a Christian household. Um, my dad was uh, like, my dad was not a Christian and my mom uh, is, but growing up like, in a Christian household, you're pretty like, in, whatever, inoculated in some ways against like some of the level of stress response and that you just sort of generally assume or, or assume once you've encountered time and time and time again, that like when you present your worldview that people are like, that's stupid. <laughs> so, so like, you're like, all right, well, that's most of my existence. I better just go ahead and get used to that. Um, but the blade thing was fascinating where I was like, this is, and this is part of the manufactured fear response as well as what I want to do on this show with you is I was like, I trust you to belay me that I can explore even recklessly. And I was like, all right, you're, Andy's got me. And I try, hopefully I, I can belay you in the same way that even if I'm messing around with the, the cord that I'm like, well, I'm not gonna let you fall. You know what I mean? And I'm not here to let you fall. And I'm not here to like, I'm, I'm here to help you. And you're, I'm here to be helped by you in pursuing this fear response. And what I see in the pandemic of fear was again, by flipping March, March or April of 2020, people were already saying, if that person's not wearing a mask, they are not a person who will belay you. Same thing with the vaccination. That's it. The vaccination passports are not about public health protection. There's just, there's, I mean, there's scant 
there's overwhelming consensus of evidence that it was not about that whatsoever. And there was no, ba there was no basis at the time cited. People weren't even saying, here's the evidence of why we're doing. So we have no reason to assume that people were doing something based on a public health basis. But what they were doing was saying, we don't want people in here who we don't trust to belay us. And if you don't get vaccinated, you're this kind of person. It's the same thing that happened with masks. And then it's the same thing we see with, uh, I would say, the negative aspects of intersectional thought, or we see it with, uh, certainly see it from the freaking Republicans telling it, telling you that Democrats are here to take your guns and kill you. And the <laughs> Democrats telling you that Republicans are here to destroy democracy. And so they're basically saying, hey, look at all these identifiers that tell you, you can't be belayed by that person. So in some ways, your group's response makes sense from that standpoint, if they've been convinced by their emotions, not their rationality, mind you, um, which is, I don't think, an, an appropriate way to evaluate such a claim by someone authoritatively saying these things enough times that you just like, literally it's a form of brainwashing. You just eventually like, well, I don't know. People keep saying it. it's gotta be true. A stitch in time must save nine. I don't know. A penny saved must be a penny earned. Um, you know, you're just like, all right, I guess those things are true until someone breaks the, breaks the mold or whatever. But that they then, if you say a thing like that, all of a sudden they're like, wait, he's, he's a non-belayer. We've been belaying with this guy, you know what I mean, this whole yeah. time, and he's not belaying us. Now, you've displayed no threat to them. You didn't even, to them, I guess, you felt like you jiggled the rope or pretended to let go of it, even though nothing of the sort happened. You literally just said a thing, <laughs> you know what I mean? You said words. And so in some ways, that would explain their fear response and explains what's so dangerous about fear is once you have false paradigms of what is dangerous, then you get in that fear response when you're at the top, you're like, well, how do I trust fall? And if I don't, if I, how do I trust fall? How do I trust? And if I can't trust you, then in some ways you can actually, hopefully maybe this will help you have a more, and me too, have more uh, empathic reaction or a more like, oh, okay, less defensive reaction. Um, not that defense is wrong, but just, you know, less defensive reaction. Meaning if that's what they felt, if they felt, oh my gosh, wait, he's, he, he shouldn't, he, I don't know if he can even belay us. Then they're like, we can, we better talk about this. What I'm really saying is, yeah. Oh my God, y'all, you all have been using frayed ropes. And I, I found a whole <laughs> yeah. box over here full of like much, much yeah. better ropes. Hey, let's just use, let's use, use good ropes, guys. Like, what do you mean? These ropes, these ropes are fine. What's wrong with you? You know, everyone's told us these ropes are fine. And you're like, oh, okay, well, let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> let's, do some, oh. let's do some tension tests or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and you're right. Like, I don't, I, this is interesting because I, I, I guess rationally or just fundamentally believe that diversity of ideology and 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 the tension that I think just naturally comes from that is extraordinarily healthy and necessary. Yeah, it's yes, great. for me, for me, very uncomfortable. So I think that's a, a yeah. difference between us. And and yet here I want to keep inviting myself to that. And and I find it, I do find it hard then to, you know, if I find myself as the minority opinion to be like, oh gosh, you know, do I you know, pick this battle, so to speak, stick my neck out. Cause I think this, this group truth wrath <laughs> is, um, is, is, is pretty common to the human condition, unfortunately. Yes. And I'm sure I've participated in it. And, you know, and I, I remembered what I was going to ask earlier, which I think is related to this. Just do you, I believe we are meaning making machines. That's thrown yeah. around a lot. Oh, yeah, and, for sure. But we might, but I'm curious, I believe that meaning is usually based on emotion. And mm. that 
maybe art is a good example. Like how do we respond to art? Oh, interesting. Um, or purpose, or even, and in this yeah. case, I think that the, and that, that we could maybe say is, oh, great. I react to art however you want. Feel, feel like you said, feel things, live. Yeah, yeah. And yet the, maybe the danger zone is when it crosses into like that meaning becomes truth. Yeah. Yeah. My emotional yeah. response to this painting is what this painting is and no one should say anything different. <laughs> and, then it, and then it becomes so hard to, it becomes intractable. It becomes like, like, it feels like a threat. I think as you were just saying, it feels like a threat to question that truth because now I'm emotionally attached to it. Yeah. Well, and it's a good thing, I think, for everyone to go ahead and check because it's fascinating, then why do you require someone else to validate? We talked about this in the pronoun conversation. Why do you require someone else to validate what you know is true? If what, like someone can deny it, deny it, deny it, deny it. Like, is that, does that benefit you like in some way? And, and listen, I have to, because I have to face this exact conversation as a Christian who is called to evangelize, which is to like talk about Jesus. Like, well, what does it matter whether anyone else like Jesus? Well, I'm like, well, of course it is fundamentally about a threat, a danger or a threat response, separation from God, eternal punishment. Um, I'm not, at some points I've been, when I made it more about myself, I would be like, I would have emotional responses if it didn't work out well and the person didn't just believe in Jesus. Um, but I'm, I'm not a child anymore. And so I'm like, well, it's not really up to me. That's like, God working. God's going to work. I can just tell you a true thing. God's going to work. If you, and actually just a lifetime of people denying it eventually that I'm like, oh, all right, well, I'm here to tell people what my best uh, estimation of what is true is. And if they accept it, fantastic. I'm excited to join them in that common place and become homogenous with them in the point of view on A, B, or C, whatever thing. But at the same time, if they deny it, it doesn't, it has no effect on me in terms of my perception of truth and has no, and it doesn't diminish my status in any way, but we have that group, that homogeny, that tendency towards homogeny, again, as we've talked about as a safety mechanism, meaning like I need to be like them. So then when things go wrong, I can be defended by the group, you know, or as things now are going wrong, I need to get with my group. But again, if we, if we look to the sovereignty of self and we look with greater, and this is why I think emotion is helpful, or and what you would call spirituality, and I would just call like self awareness or whatever. That like the more we know ourselves, the more immobile and fluid, not just immobile like state static, but immobile in terms of our sense of self. That we're like my emotion. You know, someone might shame you for your emotional response. And you're like, well, but this is my emotional response right now. So I'm gonna, I'm not gonna be like, oh yeah, I gotta stop feeling this. Why right. getting so? Why are you getting so mad? Cut it out! Don't be such a jerk. You're like, well, no, I'm mad. So I'm going to examine my madness. I'm going to talk through it. I'm going to re. I'll use reason to kind of evaluate whether it's a reasonable response or not. We can do that together if you want. But I'm not going to be like, oh no, oh no, I'm wrong. You know. But I think a lot of we we need to learn that. I I think it needs to flip flip and be taught in schools. But the hardest part is, I think schools in general education is actually bent towards homogeny. So in some ways, it would be encouraging disruptive behavior because everyone's going to regulate in different ways and everyone's going to respond in different ways and I, having dealt with groups of children, I understand why you would not want them all to follow their instincts on a constant basis. <laughs> so I recognize the pragmatism teachers. I'm not coming down on you uh, 100% for that. But yeah. we've I, I think that's a commonality you and I share as well, which is like, what's going on with you and how, like how neurotic do we need to be? I mean, I think having some degree of neuroticism, meaning if someone accuses you of something or responds away to you, I don't think it's, I don't think abject denial or 
trying to force someone out or like destroy them is a rational response, even intellectually or verbally. But we also don't need to be swayed by it. I think it's really finding that calm, the calm center, even when you are in a maelstrom of being like, oh, I received that. Let me let me move that around myself. Let me see how that how that works, how that literally feels. Again, like art, how does that feel? What does it make me think? What is what does it remind me of? But like using all the the capacities we have um, to just take take things in, take it in, man. Just take it in. Yeah. The the thing about homogeny is so important and astonishingly contradictory because it does. I mean, I think like however we might think a group is like us um can feel safer sure and yet you know when we scale that up i i think one of the great challenges for our species is this lack of biodiversity i mean we're yeah we're killing off all these species we're the way we create our food is is being radically homogenized and it's, yeah it's not the way nature wants it i think <laughs> no this is that anti it's the anti-emotion streak in some ways it's like let's streamline it let's 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 unnaturally perfect the system, which, hey, what that's what vaccination is, right? right? So those those can be good, those can be healthy capacities, and those can be damaging capacities. So I think in summary, something yeah. like um, fear in and of itself is not dangerous. I think we have two thumbs up on <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. it is simply an emotion. Is, and then, is fear it's dangerous? Fun. Thumbs up. Is fear dangerous? Thumbs down. <laughs> it's an important one. Um, yeah how we react to that uh and how we could cause danger and harm uh based on how we react to fear may, may be extraordinarily dangerous and i think yeah we've a number of examples um both yeah. interpersonally and, and scaled up to maybe the whole world maybe everything yeah i would say fear is uh is fear dangerous no is is false fear dangerous yes mm. And I think we're obsessed with false fear because we live in a phenomenally false world. And I mean that like in terms of it's not that interested in truth, but then be like the increasing virtuality of existence makes us have, this is why I think like we're, especially us, we grew up on video games, right? And then this is, I know it's about, I'm about to launch into a batshit theory right before we sign off, <laughs> but like we all grew up on video games. So then we've just like, well, we've done this on words on a page too, or anyone telling a story or whatever. We put ourselves, we project ourselves into that. But video games, most especially, we are in control of the avatar of ourselves. So especially for us, we grew up then Atari, Nintendo, whatever, placing ourselves in virtual avatars. Therefore, virtual experiences have meant something to us neurologically, physiologically, embodied intellectually, emotionally, our entire lives. So now when things happen to us virtually, if someone says, like, writes you a mean email, even though it's separate, and, we're, and the words is even different, because of course, we've been doing that as a species for a very long time. If someone wrote a letter, a negative letter to you, you would have an emotional response. You're like, this is an attack. It's words on a page, man. Yeah, but it's more concrete than spoken words. Um, but, and so likewise, if we that happens to our avatar selves, when we get attacked on social media, it's like, oh, you're attacking my virtual self, which is my real self. And that's and that penetrates into the real world then, where you're like, if you attack my ideas, you're attacking, you're attacking me. That's like my our our ideation is our virtual, our imagination is our is our virtuality in many ways, right? So I don't know who said this, but I've heard it quoted a bunch of times recently where it says, uh, what is it? Imagination is uh is our tool for our to uh, let our ideas die instead of us. Mm. 
So in some ways there's ideas and sharing of ideas and, and discussion is literally invented for us to avoid danger. Mm. Diplomacy is built to do, avoid war. And we, I think we live in a place where fear based on like ideas alone without execution of ideas, right? Ideas can, when executed, can be harmful, but the ideas themselves are not uh, explicit. We shouldn't be afraid of them, if nothing else. At some point we can realize ideas are terrible and we destroy them, right? Kanye West like says, oh yes, I'm an anti-Semite. And we're like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I want that idea around. I would, I'm okay with that being excluded from my space. I've heard all this stuff before. You know, maybe you have something new to say. I don't necessarily believe you should be censored for those beliefs or removed from social media platforms or whatever. But I understand as a society being like, nope, nope, try that idea tons of times. Don't want it. Nope. So like this, is, we have to evaluate things. But anyway, I think it's a, a, that's the very dangerous part about fear as it's identified or clarified or regarded in our in our modern society. Yeah, some. That's an interesting quote. Some language that came to me a few years ago, I think, I think related, don't pour concrete over your stories. Mm. You know, this calcification. Yeah. That I think is related to fear. Like it's a it's a grip. Yes. Oh, totally. It's like I yeah. can't. It's a it's the it's the fear death grip, you know. Yeah. Well, I know we need to wrap. Uh I love you. I love you. I I mostly don't fear you. And um even when I do fear you, I love you through that. <laughs> I love you and I thank you for trust, being trustworthy in your belaying. <laughs>